Well, we are this morning concluding our Learn, Love, Live series that we've been in uh, in January, and I've enjoyed this. I hope you have as well, just kind of focusing on some of the fundamentals, some of the things that are really important to who we are here at Mount Hope, some of the things that we want to continue to do as we continue to minister, continue to learn, continue to love, and this morning talking about living. Once you've learned about Christ, you're in love with Him, loving people, how do we live out this faith that God has called us to? And I want to talk to you about that this morning. We're going to be in James chapter 2. We'll get there in just a few moments. Let me start off by telling you something that happened to me this week. Um, It uh, happened with one of my children this week. I'm not going to tell you which one it was, but here's what she did. Um, She said something to me earlier this week, and I don't even recall what it was, but I do recall the tone it was said in. Ever have that happen to you? You don't necessarily recall what was said, but oh, you can't forget the tone that it was said in. And, uh, and she said something and said it again, and there may have been stomping of feet involved and all kinds of stuff that happens. And, and, um, and she, uh, she yelled something at me, and, and I said something back. I said, uh, please don't yell at me. Well, that's not how I said it, though. <laughs> I think it actually came out as, please don't yell at me. And it took about a millisecond for the irony to catch me, as it for sure has caught in you, that I have just done what I am telling her not to do to me. And so I rephrased it and tried to catch myself and talk with her in a tone that I want her to talk with me and and said, please don't yell at me. Uh, But the truth is, what caught me in that moment is what often catches us, and that is we don't like it and we are bothered by people whose actions do not reflect what they say. How many of you are bothered by that? Does it bother you when somebody's actions don't line up with what they say? And certainly we would all say probably that's happened to us a time or two, just like it did me this week, and and we get convicted, and it bothers us when it's true of us. But the truth is that sometimes it happens when someone says something and their actions don't line up with what they say. In fact, we have all kinds of sayings to compensate for this. One of them, maybe you've heard, maybe you've had someone say to you, maybe you had a parent say to you, or maybe you've had a teacher say to you, I'll start it, you finish it. Do as I say. Don't you hate it when someone says that to you? Do as I say and not as I do. And yet we've all experienced it at times, and it just doesn't sit well with us. Maybe it's the uh, maybe you were learning to drive, and you're a parent. You're 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 learning to drive, and your parents are yelling at you, "Keep it below the speed limit." And you know that just earlier that week you were driving with them in the car, and that needle touched eighty miles an hour. And you are thinking, well, "How come I have to keep it below the speed limit?" Or they're yelling at you, "Don't text and drive." And you see them looking at, "Well, this is important." So I, uh, and I was at a stoplight and. Or maybe it was a teacher in school who told you, hey, you got to get your papers in on time. It's important that you get them in on time. you got to get them in by this date. And you pull an all-nighter to get it done. And then you ask them, well, when are they going to be graded? And they say, well, when I get to it. 
and you want their actions to line up with their words. Or you got the boss at work who sends out a scathing email to the whole group saying that we need to make sure that our emails are more professional when we're communicating. And then you look at it and the word professional is spelt wrong. And you're saying you just want someone's actions to line up with what they say. We want people to be consistent. We want to back up what they say with what they do. Well, it turns out there was someone in the Bible who was very concerned about that as well, bothered by people whose actions didn't match what they said. And this morning, we're going to look at what he said and what it means for us today. I want to look at James chapter 2. We're just going to read verse 14 at first, and then I'm going to come back to it in just a few minutes and read a larger section. But let's just look at verse 14 of James chapter 2, and this is um, what James, uh, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus says, and this is what God's Word says to us this morning. Ask two questions in this verse. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Can such faith save him? James here is writing to a group of people, Christians, writing to a group of Christians, and he's writing to them, and he has a concern that he is raising, and the concern is that they have right belief, or it appears that they have right belief, and they believe correctly, and they're saying they have faith, but his problem with them is that their actions seem to say something different. The church was saying, listen to what we say, but don't look at what we do. It happened back then when James was writing to the early church, but it happens today as well, doesn't it? James is saying, what good is it if you say you have faith, but you don't have deeds? Many times, I think people today, some people you know, some people I know, maybe, maybe you yourself, will say, look, the important thing is that I believe. We just sang about it, right? We just sang about it. Uh, many times, there's many people who will believe that, look, what's really important is that I just believe the right thing. Look, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus came, He lived, He died, crucified, rose again, and ascended into heaven. I believe that the Holy Spirit lives within those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus is coming back again for His church. I believe... In all of this, and isn't that all that matters? And James is writing and saying that there's more to it because there's a faith and a belief that you can have that doesn't work. There's a faith and a belief that you can have that isn't really faith at all. And to be honest, sometimes we have passed on this type of thinking to other people and to the next generation, this idea that really all you got to do is believe what's right. That's the most important thing, and it is important. But James is saying, look, there's a faith that doesn't save. There's a faith that doesn't work. We can believe all those right things, and James says there could still be a problem. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking, well, I believe. Look, I signed on the dotted line. If you ask me, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? I say yes. If you ask me, is the Holy Spirit, you know, God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, I'd say yes, yes, yes. And James says, you can say yes to all of those, and there still might be 
a problem with your faith. Let me uh, go further by telling you a couple of stories. Two stories about two, men, uh, two people in Scripture. Uh, one is uh, probably one of the most famous men in all of Scripture, the founder of our faith, Abraham. Uh, he was actually called Abram before God came to him, and God came to him and spoke to him. And in Genesis chapter 12, God encounters Abram, and he gives him, and he makes a covenant with him. And he says, Abram, changes his name to Abraham, he says, because you are going to be the father of many nations. He says, I'm going to give you a land and a great people, and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations of the world. He meets this man, Abraham, and he says that. And Abraham is overwhelmed, obviously encountering the living God for no other reason than God chose Abraham. And he chose to choose Abraham, and he chose him, and he comes to him, and he gives him this promise. Well, one problem that was present was that God had promised that Abraham would have many descendants, but Abraham and his wife Sarah didn't have any kids. And it's important to have descendants if you're going to be the father of a large nation that's going to come through your line. Doesn't have any kids. They're getting older, getting beyond what's physically possible for childbearing years. God comes back in Genesis chapter 17, speaks to an angel, speaks to Abraham, and he says, you're going to be a father, and Sarah is going to have a baby. At this point, Abraham's about 100, and Sarah's about 90. And Abraham, in that occasion, actually falls to the ground and laughs. Abraham and Sarah both laugh at certain times. In fact, that's why when they have a child, they name him Isaac, which means laughter. But it happens. About a year later, Abraham's about 100 and Sarah's about 90, and they have a child and they name him Isaac. A child that God had said would come, delivered on his promise. You imagine the rejoicing that would come after the labor, I would imagine. I don't know what it's like for a 100-year-old woman to give birth, but I can't imagine it's pleasant. But after that labor, can you imagine the joy that you are now parents? Now the promise has come true, but not just the promise has come true. After 90 years of hoping and waiting, she becomes a mom, Abraham becomes a father, God delivered on his promise, the house is filled with joy. Genesis chapter 22. Move along a little bit. Isaac's getting a little older. God comes to Abraham again. He says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, and I want you to take him to a mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. At this point, remember, Abraham doesn't know really anything about God except his experience with God. There's no law. There's been no Moses. There's no Ten Commandments. None of that is in existence at this point. There's just Abraham and God speaking to him. And Abraham hears this voice, and he hears clearly that that is what God is telling him. And so he certainly must be somewhat confused that this is the promised child that God said the nation would come through, and yet he knows that this is God speaking to him. So he takes the child and the wood for the sacrifice and the fire and the knife and goes towards the mountain that God had called him to. 
They had some other people with them, and at some point Abraham says, you wait here. The boy and I will go and sacrifice and then come back. Finally, they reach the top of the mountain, and Isaac prepares the sacrifice, prepares Isaac. Uh, Abraham prepares Isaac to do what God had told him to do. So he's on the altar, and uh, the scriptures very vividly paint the picture. And it's actually, he's actually raising the knife to sacrifice his son. And in that moment, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. A few minutes after that, Abraham looks and there's a ram caught in the thicket and and that is the sacrifice that God had provided in that moment and Abraham sacrifices the ram and he and Isaac return after that moment. Fast forward about 600 years, let me tell you another story. This one's not about a man, it's about a woman and uh, she's not of the Jewish uh, she wouldn't be of Abraham's line. She wasn't Jewish or Hebrew. Her name uh, was Rahab. She lived uh, in the city of Jericho. So this is 600 years later. Uh, we've already passed Moses. We've already passed uh, the children of Israel going into captivity in Egypt, being delivered from captivity in Egypt. Moses has died. Joshua is now leading the people, and he's leading them into the promised land, which is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham 600 years earlier, leading them into the promised land, crossed the Jordan River miraculously, comes to the city of Jericho. Mighty city. These group of people who really aren't battle-hardened in any way, and yet they come to this mighty city with these mighty walls, and they send spies in to explore it. The spies go, but they obviously need to keep hidden because the leaders of Jericho, if they find them, will kill them. And so they take, uh, they take refuge in a woman named Rahab's house. And the scriptures say that she's a prostitute. Don't know really anything more about her. Knowing the history of Jericho and how things worked in the pagan religions, it's very likely that she may have been connected in some way with, the, with a pagan temple as a, as, a, as a temple prostitute or something like that. But they take refuge in her house. And then when the leaders of Jericho come looking for the spies, Rahab hides them. She hides them on the roof. And then when the leaders come and they say, we know that they've come to your house. And she's, she, she misdirects them and said, no, they've, they've left and they've gone. But you might catch them if you go and go after them. And so they do. And after they're gone, she gets out the spies from the roof and she sends them in a different direction. And they send them off safely. And this is in Joshua chapter 2. And then one of the things she says to the spies, she says, when we heard of it, she's, she's talking about the people of Jericho and other uh, people. She said, when we heard of it, this, these are when we heard of the people of uh, Israel being delivered. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show me kindness Show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign. So Rahab said, look, I fear this God that you serve. I fear him. And, and, and in the Bible, fear and reverence and worship 
kind of all go together. And she's saying, I fear, I reverence this God that you serve. So that's why I have done what I have done. I put my life on the line for you because I fear the God that you serve. I've showed kindness to you. Now, would you show kindness to me and my family? I tell you both of these stories because it's important for you to have the same background that the original readers of James would have had for, about, for what he's about to say next. And some of you may be very familiar with those stories, but just in case you're not, that's why I refreshed them for you this morning. Because what James is about to say next is directly connected to both of those stories. So let me pick up reading in verse 15 through verse 26. James says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead also. And so James comes and he, he uses these two illustrations, Abraham and Rahab, to make this point that faith without deeds is dead. And you say, wait a second, Pastor Rick, I've been here for a few weeks and you know, I don't remember a lot, but I remember a few weeks ago, you preached a sermon pretty hard on the fact that we are saved by faith alone and that we cannot add one iota to our salvation through the things that we do and through our works. How many of you were thinking that? Some of you, some of you were thinking, you know, wait a second, how can faith be, how can it be faith and works? does seem to be a little bit of a contradiction, but it's really not. James and Paul are speaking to two different poles, two different extremes, and they're bringing correction to two different arguments. Paul, in many ways, is often addressing an argument of people who are trying to achieve salvation through the works that they do, whether it's through the rite of circumcision or keeping of holy days or different laws. They're trying to say that this adds or contributes to our faith. James is addressing a people who say, look, all I got to do is believe. All I got to do is have faith. 
And that's all that matters. I believe the right things. I have the right faith. So it doesn't matter what I do. And they're bringing correction to do different sides of the argument. And James is bringing correction to these people that would say, hey, all I have to do is believe what is right. All I have to do is have faith. Sometimes we find ourselves in one of those two places. And we need James at times to remind us of what I'm about to say here in a few minutes. And sometimes we need Paul to remind us to say, no, 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 no. It's not your works that achieve your salvation. It is the work of Christ alone. But your works are not irrelevant. James is speaking primarily to confront the sins of omission. So if we were to characterize sin in two categories, broad categories, we could do it in sins of commission and sins of omission. And a lot of times we think of the sins of commission, those things that violate the thou shalt nots of Scripture. You commit a sin. Sometimes we think, well, hey, all I have to do is believe and not commit sin. The old Boy Scout cliche, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. As long as I believe the right thing and don't do these wrong things, I'm good, right? As long as I'm not breaking any of those big ten commandments or any of the other laws and I have the right belief, then we're good. My Christian walk is solid. But James is confronting something else that we often ignore, and it's the sin of omission. It's the sin of not doing the things we're supposed to do. And he says, if you don't, if you neglect that part, you can have a faith that doesn't save. We can know this by the immediate context and also by the larger context. Let me just put it to you quickly like this. In the immediate context, he gives this example of a guy who comes along someone who's in obvious physical need. And his response is, keep well, keep warm. You know, keep well, keep warm, but then does nothing about his physical need. And that's a sin of omission, James says. You could do something about it. You didn't commit any sin there, but you omitted and you missed an opportunity to do good when you should have, and that's a problem. And then he gives these two examples, one of Abraham. Abraham's wasn't, if Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac, it was a sin of omission. He didn't do what he should do in accordance to the voice of God. If Rahab didn't help the spies, it's a sin of omission. Her faith did not do what it should do in response to these that needed help. But then there's a larger context in the book of James. If you backed up a chapter to James chapter 1 and verse 27, you'd find there James' definition of what pure religion is. And in his definition of pure religion, he says, look, keep yourself unspotted from the world, but pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, take care of the widows and the orphans and keep yourself unspotted from the world. In other words, you have a responsibility if you're going to have a religion, if you're going to have a relationship with God, if you're going to have, if you're going to love God and please God, there is a responsibility not only to not commit sin, but to not omit what you're supposed to do. And in this case, James says, take care of the widows and the orphans. And then later on in James chapter 4, just a couple chapters later, chapter 4, verse 17, James actually gives us a definition of what sin is. In James chapter 4, verse 17, in fact, turn there. I think this is an, an extremely important verse in Scripture because it's a very clear definition of what sin is. 
One definition James gives, he says, James 4, 17 says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. It's not how we often or all the time think of sin. Sometimes we think of sin as, well, did I do anything today I wasn't supposed to? Nope. I'm good. James is saying, you need to ask a second question. Did you fail to do something that you should have done? Because that's a sin too. Did you have the opportunity to do good? And did you not do it? Because that's a sin too. And so James is saying, look, you need to have a faith that actually works. And so both in his definition of pure religion and in his definition of sin, we see James saying, look, if your faith omits doing the good that you're supposed to do, it may be a faith that doesn't work. It may be a faith that isn't really faith. It may be a faith that will not save you. He says, look, you have the right belief, so do the demons. And at least they shudder. At least they fear God. At least they have some response and action to their belief. James is saying your actions also ought to reflect your belief. What keeps us from doing the good that we should do? Three things really quickly that could do it. One is we just don't know. We just don't know the good that we're supposed to do. We're not aware of the good that we're supposed to do. We lack the knowledge. That's why a couple of weeks ago we talked about the importance of Mount Hope being a place where we learn about God and where we learn about what it is to follow God. We don't want you to lack knowledge. When you come to church, one thing that should happen is we learn or are reminded that following God involves caring for widows, orphans, helping people who are in need, those inside the church, and our neighbors outside the church. So we come and we learn because sometimes maybe we omit doing the good we should do because we just don't know we're supposed to do it. So we come and we learn, and that's important. What we learn here on a Sunday morning is so that we can go out the rest of the week and live it out outside of the building. Let me, let me illustrate this way. Have you ever watched a NASCAR race? Huh? I see some people shaking their head. How many people watch NASCAR races? We had a couple of NASCAR. Those of you that haven't watched a NASCAR race, you may think that the only way you win a NASCAR race is just by making a left turn better than everyone else. But there's actually a little more strategy to it. And one of the strategies of winning a NASCAR race is what happens in the pit. Not just what happens on the track, but what happens in the pit. One illustration that one pastor gave uh, about this is this. He, he says, did you know that a good pit crew can change four tires, fill the gas tank, wipe off the windshield, and give the driver a drink, and maybe even replace a fender in 15.8 seconds. A good pit crew. I got to wait 10 minutes at Jiffy Lube just to get my oil checked. 15.8 seconds. And change the oil, the tires. I mean, change the tires, fill the tank up with gas. Good pit crew can do that in 15.8 seconds to get the driver and the car fully operational back in the race because the race is what it's all about. Races are lost if one spends too much time in the pit. Do our churches know this? Imagine a pit crew that did all of that in 15.8 seconds and then just stood there and high-fived each other, put their hands in their pockets while the car sat there in the pit. 
I mean, they worked hard. They changed the tires, all that, right? Changed, filled up with gas, got the guy a drink, wiped off the car, it's good. But they need a push back on the track, but the guys are high-fiving each other and shaking hands, and they just leave the car there. Miss the point, right? Because the point is to win the race. The point is to get the car back on the track and win the race. The point is not the pit. The point is the race, but what happens is the pit is important. When I watch a pit crew working together to get the driver's car prepared, I see a vision of pastors and associates fueling, fixing, pushing people back into the race. But if we take too much time and we say, hey, look, just stay in the pit, and our focus is there, then the race never gets won. The race can be won or lost by what happens in the pit. It's not that it's not important. It is important. But what's really important is going out and living the faith and winning the race. As a pastor, I must confess that much of my world revolves around what happens in this building. And that's okay. It should. That's who I am. That's my job. That's my call. Much of my world revolves around what happens in this building on a Sunday morning, on the days between Sunday. That's much of my world revolves around that. However, I have to apologize if in speaking from that lens, which is my lens, if I've given the impression that all that really matters is done in this building and the work that you do outside is somehow secondary. What we do in this building is significant. The race can be won or lost in the pit. What happens here on a Sunday morning can win or lose this race that you're running for the Lord. As we listen to what the Lord has to say to him, as we encounter the Lord in worship and in the word, as we submit or fail to submit to the word of God, can be won or lost. However, if what we do in this room on Sunday mornings from 10 o'clock to 11.30 doesn't help you to run your race for God the other 166.5 hours of the week, then we aren't doing something right. Then we are missing the mark somewhere. Because the point is to live this faith. The point is that you and I are called to live this faith before God. And so you and I are called to do this. And so we, we come together. One thing on Sunday morning is so you and I can know what it is to live this life for God. Secondly, maybe one of the reasons we don't do this, maybe one of the reasons we omit doing what we should do, even though uh, it's the good we ought to do, maybe the cost is too great. Maybe the cost is too great. Money. Let's talk about the, the real financial cost. Money. There was this guy, right? Keep well, keep warm, but doesn't help him physically. There would have been a cost to helping that person physically. A little later in James chapter 5, I'm not going to read it for you right now, but James gives a warning to the rich, and his words are so harsh that it's hard to believe he is actually addressing people who would call themselves Christians. But this is a letter to the church, and they are Christians. He warns them against loving money so much that it causes them to mistreat people. Our focus on money can cause us to omit doing what God wants us to do. Perhaps it sounds something like this. I can see that you're cold and hungry. 
but my 401k dropped 8% this week. Haven't you seen what the stock market this week happened this week? My 401k dropped 8%. I can't help you. I got to build that back up. So keep warm. Be well. Or maybe it looks something like this. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear about that, 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 uh, that, that payment that you can't make on, on your apartment. You know, that's, that's tough. That, 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 but I've got this, you, you don't understand the pressure I'm under. I've got an $800 a month car payment that I've I got to make next week. Keep well. Be warm. Anything wrong with a 401k or a car payment? Only if it keeps us from doing the good that we ought to do. Only in as much that it keeps us from doing the good that we ought to do for those around us. James is saying, don't omit doing the good you ought to do. Sometimes it's selfish personal ambition, not just money. I want to do what I want to do. A little later in James chapter 4, he's talking about praying, beginning of chapter 4, and he says, look, some of you are praying and you're not getting what you're praying for. You know why? Because you're asking selfishly. Because you're asking with selfish ambition. We don't want. We don't want to do what we ought to do because we want to take care of ourselves. Another one, maybe a reason, maybe the cost is too high on respect, reputation. If we're going to do the good we ought to do, sometimes it costs us some of our reputation because the good we ought to do doesn't involve always being around the right people. Doesn't involve always rubbing shoulders with the people that are popular. In fact, just prior to this passage in James chapter 2, he says, look, don't show favoritism to the rich. He says, when a rich man comes into your, your, your assembly and you lead him to the best chair in the house and then a poor man comes in and you tell him, oh, just find a place to sit over there. That's wrong. That's wrong. And so sometimes doing the good we ought to do is going to cost us in respect. It's going to cost us in our reputation. And so maybe that's what keeps us from doing the good we ought to do. And sometimes it's just going to cost us and we're not willing to pay the cost. For Abraham, God said, would you be willing to give up the most valuable thing in your life for me? Would you be willing to give up that promised child that you waited for 100 years? years for me Jesus put it this way whoever's going to follow me must hate his mother and father and brothers and sisters in other words Jesus is saying your love for me must be so strong that even your closest relationships in this world almost feels like hate because you love me so much because I am so important to you, that no one can come before me. Sometimes it's going to cost us. Rahab put her life on the line. Christians are doing that today. Maybe not in your neighborhood. Maybe not in our country right now, though some are, but around the world for sure. Actions lining up with what we say we believe. So sometimes it's the cost Sometimes we just don't know the good we're supposed to do. Third and finally, I close with this. Maybe the reason we don't do the good we ought to do is because we just don't understand the love of God. Last week, we talked about the fact that our not loving people in the church is often more connected to our not knowing the love of God 
than it is in not wanting or trying hard enough. Some of you, when I just a few minutes ago rehearsed that story of Abraham, maybe you heard that for the first time. Or maybe you heard it for the hundredth time. But even if you did hear it for the hundredth time, there's something that grated against you when I told you that story, isn't it? When I said that God was asking a man to sacrifice his son, there's something within us that says, no, that can't be. That can't be right. There's something within us that says, no, the idea of a father killing his son and this idea, there's something within us that says, no. And God said, no. God said, no, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And repeatedly throughout Scripture, God says that human sacrifices, unlike other pagan religions, is not part of his religion, not part of his worship, not part of what he would require. And yet, and yet, you know what he didn't make Abraham do? He did himself. What he did not ask anyone else to do, he sent his own son as a perfect sacrifice to pay for our sin. Because Isaac wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice and no human would have been. But God alone, God the Son, sent doing what he and he alone could do. The truth is we all deserve to be Isaac on the altar. The truth is we all deserve to receive the penalty of our sin against the holy God. But God said he would pay it. He sent his son Jesus in order to pay that sin. When we understand God's love for us, we are less tempted to omit doing the things we ought to do and more likely to live a life for God and to have a faith that works. Because the truth is, I think sometimes we omit doing the good we ought to do. Sometimes our actions don't line up with our words because we have lost sight of how much God loves us of what God has done for us. You see, with God, his actions do line up with his words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He acted. His actions line up with his words. And it's that God that we are called not only to believe in, not only to learn about, not only to love, but to live our lives for a warning in this passage, I'd say, as I close, I don't think James in any way seems to be giving this passage as a witness test for Christians to use on each other. He's not saying we should go around and evaluate other people's faith and determine whether it's real or not. He's saying that we need to evaluate our own faith. Look in your own heart. Are your actions lining up with your words? He's not giving this to them and saying, okay, now line up the rest of the church and start going. He's saying, look, if you're living like this, if your actions aren't lining up with your words, your faith may be dead. And the reason this is important is because a faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't work. A faith that doesn't work, a faith that doesn't have deeds, a faith that doesn't have actions with it is a faith that doesn't work. 
It's a faith that doesn't save. James says it's dead. He actually uses the word useless, which you look at the Greek on that, it means sterile. It means it can't accomplish anything. It cannot accomplish what it's intended to accomplish. It's a dead faith. Faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't work. If we want to know someone who actually believes what they are saying, we watch what they do. If we say we believe in Jesus, people are watching what we do to see if our actions match our words. Our works alone do not save us, but our works indicate that we are saved. And there's the balance between James and Paul. Our works alone and our works do not save us, but our works indicate that we have a faith that saves And so this morning, as we talk about living out our faith, the challenge is to evaluate it. Does my faith manifest itself in works? Because imagine how powerful the message of Jesus Christ would be to this world if his followers lived out the lives he's calling us to live. In 2011, New York Times editorialist Nicholas Nicholas Kristof wrote a column praising the work of many evangelical Christians not something you often read in the New York Times. Christoph began the article by noting at times evangelical leaders do act hypocritically and don't reflect Christ, but then he says this, but in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, mostly church-related. More important... Go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, he asks. He adds, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. Faith without works may be dead, but when your faith and your works work together, it shines a bright light to the world around us of who Christ is and what this faith is as a real faith. So where in your life are your actions not reflecting what you believe? The hard questions must, we must ask ourselves is, do we really believe? Do we have a faith that saves? Is our faith manifesting itself in actions? If James was to write this passage today, would he use us as an example? If James was to write this passage today, would he use you as an example? Or maybe it's even better to ask it this way, which example would he use you for? Would you be the one in the beginning that he says, keep well, keep warm, but doesn't do anything about the physical needs? Or would you be an example that he could use near the end? Would you be the example he could use near the end where James would say, You know, remember the faith of our brother Gus or Joseph or Kathy or Annette. Would you be the one that he would say, remember this faith? And their actions proved their faith. Which example would we be?
as our worship team comes back and as we close out our service this morning, encourage us to search our hearts and ask the Lord. First of all, Lord, would you show us the places in our lives where perhaps we're proclaiming faith, but our actions aren't lining up with it. Second, Lord, forgive us of those places. Third, Lord, help us this week to live lives that line up with what we believe. Learn, love, live. At Mount Hope, we will be a place where people can learn about God no matter where they are starting from. Come to our, our base camp class today as, as part of that learning. We'll be a place full of people who love God and love people, those that are in the church, and show mercy to those, our neighbors, who are outside the church. But we will also be a people who live out the faith that we have and not neglect the good that we should do. May it be true of us. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the many comforting words in Scripture that are there. God, we thank you this morning for the hard and challenging words of Scripture. Father, I pray that you would help us to search our hearts accurately. Because there can be a tendency within us, Lord, to just want to beat ourselves up after a passage like this and, and see so often, Lord, that we always fall short. And, or maybe there's a temptation on the other side, Lord, to just let ourselves skate and make excuses for the times when we haven't acted the way we should. Lord, I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would search our hearts and we would see ourselves in light of your word and through your Holy Spirit that we would have an accurate view of our faith. And Lord, if we have a faith that does not save, a faith that is dead, would this morning you speak to us and show us, Lord, and call us to that faith that actually works. It's not that our works save us, Lord, but we also don't want to be a people that say we believe one thing, and then our actions say something different. Father, help us to follow you faithfully and to live out this faith before you. In Christ's name, amen.